Welcome back to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. The podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. In today's episode, we'll hear from a workplace wellbeing expert who has pivoted her career from being a medical doctor to becoming the chief health and wellbeing officer for one of the world's largest organizations. But before I introduce today's guest, I'd first like to take a moment to thank our series sponsor, S&P Global. The world's leading organizations rely on S&P Global for the essential intelligence they need to make confident decisions. S&P Global, powering global markets. Now, what shampoo or shower gel did you use when you got up this morning? And what products did you use last time you cleaned your bathroom or did the laundry? And last time you treated yourself to a delicious ice cream, what brand was it? Chances are that at least one of the products you've just been thinking about is a Unilever product. Unilever is one of the world's largest suppliers of beauty, personal care, home care and nutrition and ice cream products. They sell products in over 190 countries and an incredible 3.4 billion people use at least one Unilever product every single day. And they have well over 100,000 employees. And today's guest is responsible for the health and well-being of each and every one of those individuals. Dr. Diana Han serves as Unilever's Chief Health and Wellbeing Officer, where she leads a global team of health and wellbeing professionals. Her team oversees the design and implementation of programs, policies, and services aimed at meeting the comprehensive health and wellbeing needs of each and every one of those Unilever employees. A seasoned executive physician with her roots in academic medicine, Dr. Han has dedicated her career to improving population health outcomes by working at the intersection of medicine, public health, and information technology. Dr. Diana Han, you are so welcome. Hi, Sarah. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I'm really excited to start by actually hearing more about your career, because I'm always so interested in people's career journeys and motivations. Um, Let's go right back to the beginning, because, of course, you trained as a medical doctor. Was there a moment where you decided that was what you wanted to do with your life? Yes, um, I think I was about 12 years old uh, when the epiphany hit, um, and actually it was the con- in the context of a, a childhood uh, illness I had. So when I was 12, um, I actually was uh, was quite ill uh, for a period of time and needed to go to the hospital. And uh, this was in Chicago, uh, where I spent most of my childhood, um, and I went to Children's Memorial uh, Hospital and was cared for uh, by a physician um, who was just the most incredibly kind, caring uh, human being. And obviously at the time as a a child, that was what I responded to. And so I remember uh, lying in the stretcher and actually it was Dr. David Irons. I don't know if you're out there, Dr. Irons, but thank you. You have no idea uh, what a difference you made in my life. But he came into uh, the, the emergency room bay 
and said, um, how are you? And I said, fine. Uh, just that reflex, you know, that uh, answer that we often all give. And he said, then what are you doing here? And so, of course, uh, at age 12, I was like, wait a minute, hang on. Um, I'm not fine. And uh, he was just so um, kind and warm, but also really, really funny um, and took great care of me uh, while I was in the hospital. I felt, uh, of course, much better and unfortunately fully recovered. And that was um, honestly the moment I had the epiphany that I don't know if I crystallized it as I want to be a doctor when I grow up, but it's I want to do what he did because uh, it very much felt like he had a a superpower, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Spider-Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, um, which was sort of my construct of superheroes at the time, but he felt like a real superhero. So he inspired me. I, I love that story because, of course, he was a superhero, mm. but his superpower wasn't necessarily his medical expertise. Mm -hmm. It was his ability to bring that kindness and warmth yeah. to people. And we had a guest who I, who I think you know, another medical doctor um, a while back, Dr. Kelly Harding, mm, who yes, has sure. dedicated research to yeah. how kindness and social connection mm -hmm. can have such a positive impact on our physical and mental health. Yes, so very true. such a, a fabulous story. And thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose moving forward with your career, you then more mm -hmm. recently pivoted um, into the corporate world to support mm -hmm. the, the health and well-being of employees, initially in GE and, and now in Unilever. Mm -hmm. Was there a sort of moment of realization when you thought that you wanted to take all of your medical expertise yep. and bring that to the corporate world? Yeah, I think the, the journey for me began um, shortly after I finished uh, my internal medicine resi residency training at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Um, where I entered, um, at the time it was private practice, and uh, built a patient panel and really, really loved um, really making a difference one human being at a time. And it was a very palpable difference where I literally was engaging and supporting um, and at least trying to deploy the same uh, superpowers as uh, Dr. Irons had deployed for me. But I realized... Um, as much as I, I loved uh, taking care of patients, I was nevertheless still making a difference, one human being at a time, which is incredibly powerful. But I wanted to um, scale the impact I could have for populations at a time. So actually, the, the journey to the corporate side of healthcare began even in the very earliest uh, formative days of my career after finishing residency. Um, uh, when I transitioned to consulting um, and uh, at the time worked uh, in the context of a very early health uh, information technology um, a, a startup. Um, and we were working on content for uh, to try to democratize um, health knowledge so that uh, any human being who had a question about his or her health could go online and search and at least begin to read and understand. And of course, the industry has evolved over the course of the generation, but uh, in those days, there were very, very few resources available of this kind. And I I loved um, that kind of work where I could still take the foundation um, that I had built in clinical uh, academic medicine, but really then to think about democratizing and bringing um, that knowledge and the power of that knowledge to uh, populations at scale. And then um, the career path was was 
further circuitous and uh, in the context of consulting where I had my day job taking care of patients in my practice. I also then um, worked for a boutique um, as a consultant for a boutique investment bank uh, in Boston on the due diligence side. So as uh, you know, the, the bank was uh, contemplating certain investments, of course, uh, the research side, the due diligence side was really, really important um, to help uh, enable those decisions. So learned a lot uh, in that context about how to evaluate uh, technologies, programs, products, services uh, to again uh, bring healthcare and unlock the power of health and well-being for populations at scale. Um, and then went on uh, to work for a health insurance company um, uh, called Humana, uh, based in in the U.S., and learned the financing of healthcare, um, you know, from the ground up, uh, and the design of financial products to help people uh, purchase healthcare. Um, uh, now, obviously, in a in a U.S. Uh, context where employers uh, will oftentimes self-insure uh, healthcare benefits, so that was a, a very formative part of my career. Um, and then from there, actually went fully back into clinical practice full-time because then I wanted to take everything I'd learned on the business side of healthcare, but then I wanted to now make a difference one human at a time again, but in a very different way, moving from analog patient-by-patient patient support to incorporating the technologies, the service mindset I had learned on the business side and loved doing that. And actually, it was in the context of doing that. I was um, speaking at a conference, um, and uh, one of the GE business leaders was in the uh, you know, member of the audience and actually came up to me uh, uh, right afterwards and said, hey, um, what you shared about how you're bringing quality of care, consumer mindset, consumer-grade technologies to bear um, in your practice, but informed by the career you've had on the business side, is really, really interesting. What do you think about doing this in the context of populations at scale, but in a corporate, uh, multinational environment. Um, so that was in the early 20-teens when I made the transition over. So I, I've been on the multinational corporate side of health and well-being now for a, a, a long time and really love, the, in, in some ways I, I find it to be the sweet spot because it is still the chance uh, to engage one human being at a time, one colleague at a time, one family member at a time, but at the same time, still to be able to scale at a meaningful population level, but in a, a contiguous ecosystem, which is that employer ecosystem where we can bring to life uh, policies, programs, um, processes, platforms to bear in a contiguous way, uh, an integrated way, in an amplified way to make a difference for our people, their families, and the communities we serve. And I really loved uh, my time at, uh, at GE, um, and it was really during the height of the pandemic um, when Unilever reached out um, with the opportunity that I have now. Um, when I 
took a look at the company and took a look at its purpose um, and took a look at its footprint, um, operating not only in developed markets, but in so many developing countries, and the chance to also incorporate uh, the public health elements at scale to make a difference in these hundreds of countries um, that we either operate in or, or, or sell our products in um, was incredibly um, enlivening. Uh, and so making a job change, I will say, during uh, the height of the pandemic was quite an interesting experience, um, especially doing a global job uh, from my home office in the in the U.S. Well, I mean, it, it's also fascinating. And I'm really interested, of course, that you went from supporting one person at a time mm -hmm. to supporting mass people. And in some ways, that's your superpower, <laughs> you know, being able to support the health and well-being needs of over 100,000 employees, well over 100,000 employees. Um, but there's one person whose health and well-being I want to mm -hmm. ask about just before I yeah. dig into Unilever, and that's your own. Because mm -hmm. listening to you, you've such a demanding job. Um, so I'd love to ask you a few questions about how you look after your own health and well-being. Sure. And the first question, with a view to putting on our own life jacket <laughs> first, yes. is just very simply, on a daily basis, is there anything you do to support your own well-being? Well, let's put it this way. It's incredibly important to me to practice what I preach. Um, it would be the height of hypocrisy uh, if I'm you know, trying to support our, our people uh, you know, with, uh, with my team and with uh, key colleagues in the business across our functions and our business leaders. If I don't first uh, practice everything that I am putting forward um, in front of our people. So it comes down to the profound basics. And I think that the, the thing about health and well-being is the basics haven't changed. Of course, we understand a lot more um, about what informs those basics, how to practice those basics. But when I think about the categories of movement, um, nutrition, uh, sleep, mindfulness, um, human connectivity, uh, those are all sort of the key constructs of what I try as best I can. I think that's the key phrase is that I try the best I, I can to execute every day for myself. So I'll just give a few practical examples. When it comes to movement, I am moving my body uh, every day. Um, now, is it uh, always uh, a regimented uh, workout? Not necessarily, especially uh, when I'm physically traveling and I travel a lot for my job. If I'm holed up on a 15-hour flight um, from the U.S. Uh, to, say, Johannesburg, I'm not going to really be able to run on the treadmill or do a, a cross-training workout, but I'm moving mm -hmm. uh, in some form or fashion. I try to get up. Um, if I'm in flight, I'm, I'm walking uh, up and down here and there uh, on the airplane. I always bring exercise bands, um, so I'm not going to be that person who might be awkwardly and trying to respect, of course, the, the space of the neighbors around me. Uh, I'm sort of just using those bands <laughs> for strength training. Um, and you can actually do some pretty pretty good things with that uh, with those bands on an airplane. And then when I am on the ground, it could be in a hotel room or it could be uh, wherever I may be, and there's a hotel gym, or um, the weather is decent enough to just uh, open the door and go on a run. I find that um, Running is the best way for me to uh, combine the best of exercise with also seeing the environment I, I'm in. When it comes to nutrition, 
because I do travel so much and I do, uh, of course, then that means I'm at business dinners, lunches, breakfasts, hotel mm-hmm. breakfast, whatever it may be. Um, it's an 80-20 rule where I do try to eat super healthfully, mostly a plant-based uh, diet, although, of course, um, uh, other healthy proteins, healthy fats. Uh, this morning I had half an avocado um, with uh, a boiled egg. I did have a 100% whole grain uh, piece of bread. It was actually olive bread. It was delicious. Um, And so just eating as healthfully as I can and fruit. But of course, there are indulgences as well. I'm, uh, you know, a huge fan of um, our Ben and Jerry's Americone Dream ice cream. Uh, My family knows that if I'm not careful, I can open a pint of Americone Dream. And let's just say (laughs) could see the bottom of that pint if I'm not over my shoulder. We have in there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And then when it comes to um, sleep, this is, I would say, my biggest struggle because I do um, go back and forth across uh, some pretty massive time zones, not only during business travel, but because I have a global job. Um, even when I am home in the in the U.S., uh, I do follow the sun. I have teams uh, in dozens of countries around the world. And of course, given the role that I have, um, I want to be there for my team, for our people, for the business. And so this is where being um, as attentive as possible to sleep is key. I I, I do struggle, um, especially falling asleep uh, in particular, because oftentimes, because I, I do have to follow the sun in, in my work, um, I don't quite have the time to shut off my brain um, enough, yeah. uh, but I do so try do you have best. techniques that you use in that moment when yeah. your to-do list is running through yeah. your head and you're trying to sleep, but actually mentally you're at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning? Yeah. What do you do then to shut off? Um, so I think a lot of what I try to do is to build in as much time as I can uh, practicably um, make before sleep. And ideally, that's an hour or two. But to be honest, it's usually more like half an hour. And um, this is where I do try to turn down the lights. Um, I do put my devices away. Um, I um, just try to sit quietly. I try to breathe, um, meditate. Although I, I will say I'm not great at it because coming my mind and turning it off is quite hard. I am thinking ahead to um, what's still happening, what's still ongoing, let alone tomorrow morning or the day after. Um, But really, to be honest, giving myself grace um, in many ways that um, the good uh, as they say, can't uh, get in the way. And in terms of chasing perfection, good enough is, is good enough sometimes. And to do my very level best with good intentions as thoughtfully as I can um, for our people in our business um, and to make peace with that, uh, but to try to have that quiet time built in as as best as I can. You know, I, I find this so helpful mm. because it, I traveled a lot in mm. my early career mm. and, and, you know, being completely honest, mm. That definitely took its toll on me from a physical and mental health perspective. And I really should have phoned you up 20 <laughs> years ago and got all of these tips. But I'm sure there'll be a lot of listeners who do travel a lot. And it can be really hard to stay on top of your nutrition and exercise. But sure. actually, one of the other things I found was alone in a hotel room in a strange country, yeah. loneliness did set in. Sure. Um, how do you cope with that? Because your, I believe your role is based in London. Mm-hmm. But you live in New York and you have teams all around the world, so you are mm-hmm. traveling a lot. Mm-hmm. How do you manage 
keeping that social connectedness in your life and not letting the loneliness birds yeah. fly over you when you're in that hotel room. Yeah, well, it can be hard. Um, uh, honestly, the hardest part for me, so for example, you know, at the moment I've been on the road for two weeks. Um, I really do uh, desperately miss my family. I would say that's that's the hardest part. Um, I'm I'm very rarely alone um, when I'm on the road because, of course, I'm with our teams, colleagues, uh, partners in the community, um, and the work is very enlivening, and I enjoy that uh, not only professional connection, but because I I'm I have the profound good fortune to be living my purpose um, uh, in terms of the, uh, a career in health and well-being. It that that keeps me going, but I I will say I do miss my family a lot, and so this is where I frequently am in touch, and oftentimes it's honestly via text. So it's. Uh, the beautiful thing is this is where technology, while, while it is a double-edged sword, I will say, uh, can absolutely provide a world of good and to stay in touch um, in little micro ways throughout the day. You know, I was taking the train this morning to be with you, and uh, as soon as I got cell signal, um, while it's, uh, it's, it's still uh, nighttime, but at least even the act of hey, I'm on the train, I'm on my way, I'm going to meet with Sarah. Uh, that somehow makes me feel connected. Uh, um, and then, of course, later on the train back, uh, across time zones, I'll be able to get to connect live. But um, I think carrying uh, carrying my family with me, uh, I have a, a, a little um, a little keychain that's got uh, photos of my, my daughters, uh, me and Allie. And then, uh, of course, I'm always in touch with my husband. We also have fur kids as well. So oftentimes the bright spot in the day is uh, some of the photos that come through in terms of the antics of the two cats uh, and our, our dog. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, and that brings me to yeah. what I think is a really important topic. Mm. Um, we used to talk about work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're talking more about work-life integration mm -hmm. because we're recognizing that actually there isn't such a clear delineation mm -hmm. in some ways between work and life. Yeah. Um, how do you support your work-life integration yeah. when you've got, obviously, you know, responsibilities, right. you know, looking at raising your daughters and, you know, all the rest of it? How does mm -hmm. that work for mm -hmm. you? Um, so I will say work-life balance, for if we can achieve it, is a wonderful North Star aspiration. I, uh, I will confess, certainly um, throughout my career, because I've really worked uh, the entire time um, since I've become a, of course, before and, of course, since being a, a parent and while my girls are now um, quite independent young women themselves. But uh, it's uh, it's been challenging through the years and what I learned, and it's it sort of depends on the phase of your life. Um, uh, I, I think it was the case uh, at, a, at a phase of life where I, I realized I can't have I can have everything, but maybe not all exactly at the same time. So then it becomes a matter of prioritization for different slices of, of life. Um, when my children were infants and toddlers, of course, the physical need of very young children um, meant I physically very much wanted to be there. Um, and so that just meant that there were... Some of the things around um, choices in career, I didn't 
travel as much then and very wittingly. And as, of course, they grew and grew and became more independent, um, there are ways uh, to stay connected as a parent that didn't require physically being there. It didn't, uh, you know, they can, they're obviously getting out and about in the world on their own, living very much uh, their their own lives as young adults. And so um, it's just accepting that prioritization is key. And the equation is incredibly different for each human being um, and what's important at that slice of life. So for me, that concept of integration is one that I embraced many, many years ago, is how do I integrate um, life into work and work into life and make it all work. Um, and of course, I, I do want to acknowledge, you know, the profound privilege um, that with the kind of uh, career I have, uh, even before COVID, uh, you know, institutionalized hybrid ways of working, there, there absolutely were times if I had a particular life need, I could still carry on with work no matter uh, where I might be. And now, of course, it's much more institutionalized, um, uh, at, uh, certainly at Unilever for sure, in terms of hybrid and hybrid ways of working. Um, but it's, I think prioritization is key in, in, in determining what has pride of place, both in terms of life and in terms of work. You have to prioritize on both sides of the equation. It's so lovely hearing your story and hearing a little bit about your family life as well mm. as your job. And that's why your job is so important, because you're the chief health and well-being mm. officer looking after the needs of over 100,000 mm -hmm. people, all of whom have their own slices of mm. life and have their own situations. So it really is a very diverse group of people yeah. who you're looking after. Yep. So this is the this is the big question, right? How does Unilever do mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. How do you look after the health and well-being of so many people from very different cultures mm -hmm. at very different stages of life with very different needs? Sure. Well, I think the first thing um, to call out is I'm so lucky. I'm, I'm not doing this alone. Uh, and while I, again, feel profoundly lucky and grateful to have the role I have, I, I have a spectacular team in many dozens of countries around the world. And and to be honest, every leader at Unilever is leading um, for health and well-being with their respective teams because it very much takes, in this case, the Unilever village to bring to life health and well-being for our people in all the countries that we operate, where exactly to your point, um, the context is very different. Um, cultures are, are very different. Um, and so while we can have a global strategy, bringing the global strategy of health and well-being to life um, locally requires very much on the ground sensibilities for those strategies to be relevant to our people. And so I think, you know, the, the way Unilever starts um, is, of course, very much uh, checking with our people and hearing their voices. So it's not that we are designing these strategies in an ivory tower somewhere. And so we have very specific um, uh, platforms and 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 processes and 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 times of year, uh, both annually as well as quarterly, and then also on an ongoing ad hoc basis to collect 
uh, the voices of our people at scale. Um, we look at the data, uh, and there are many things we ask our people, but certainly themes that inform health and well-being are very much part of uh, these surveys. And then from there, once um, we take a look at, at what the data tells us, to bring the data to life in much more nuanced ways by actually the qualitative elements of asking, uh, getting into um, conversations um, among teams uh, and around the world and just uh, sense checking, well, the data says this, but what exactly might this mean for this particular team, this particular segment of people in this particular country or, or, or work site? Um, and then uh, having an opportunity to feed that and share that um, uh, back to uh, our leadership teams. Um, and then, of course, coming to my team in global health and, and well-being. And so that we can always uh, try to be as, as relevant as we can in adjusting the macro strategies and then working with these different teams all around the world to operationalize those strategies um, to enable whole person health. So that's the health of the body, yes. It's also the health of the mind, so mental health, emotional um, well-being. It's the you know health and well-being in the context of social connection because the world of work is such a critical um, enabler of health and well-being because uh, for those of us who who do work, who are in the workplace, it is undeniably the case that the, you know, how we work, um, what we work on um, absolutely impacts our own individual health and well-being, the health and well-being of teams. Um, and so just the, the human elements and then, of course, the communities we belong to, and it could be work communities, um, but it also could be the literal communities that um, we are a part of and whatever may be going on within that community, of course, impacts um, our individual health and well-being and the health and well-being of the business. So it's really acknowledging all of these elements and that health and well-being is not just, hey, eat less, exercise more. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredibly comprehensive. And I think contemporary health and well-being and the future of health and well-being acknowledges that work is a determinant of health and well-being. And there is that interplay um, always that we need to attend to and that everything that's in the mix doesn't exist in isolation, especially um, in the world we live in now. And it's a, an increasingly challenging world we live in now, everywhere around the world. Yeah. I love listening to the fact that you pay so much attention to employee voice. And, you know, it really became clear in that, that your starting point is listening. Mm -hmm. Listening and understanding and understanding what those needs are. And it made me think about a conversation I had on this podcast with Professor Amy Edmondson, yeah. who, who I believe you know well. And she talked about, she gave a really good definition of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I suppose my understanding of the definition of psychological safety is that each and every employee has a voice right. and feels free at any stage to share their ideas, share their opinions, and critically Share and share the criticism as well. Right. It's so important. And if a mistake is made to hold their hands up. And so 
it sounds like you, by seeking that feedback, you're seeking employee voice and creating that environment of psychological safety. But I know that you've worked with Amy and you're also doing quite a bit when it comes to creating an Mm -hmm. environment of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about what you're doing there? Oh, of course. Yes. Um, uh, First of all, uh, absolutely, Unilever uh, has... In fact, our psych safety journey started um, when Professor Edmondson uh, actually spoke to our our Compass Leaders Forum. This is a, a gathering of uh, Unilever's leadership team from around the world um, and spoke about psych safety exactly from a definitional standpoint, as, as you say. But it um, really is about two things. Um, psych safety, of course, being important, sure, for its own sake, because... It so enables mental health and just broad well-being when each of us can show up authentically um, and be able to speak our truth, be able to take those interpersonal risks um, without any fear of personal or professional consequence. Um, But also, in addition to enabling well-being, psych safety is critically important for also contributing to the, the conditions necessary for innovation um, and for winning business performance. And of course, um, uh, Amy's research clearly has shown this. And so we are very, we try to be very evidence-based um, in the, the the things we prioritize strategically. And that's why psych safety, along with a few other elements, um, have very much informed our global health and well-being strategy. Um, and so the way we bring this to life, uh, first and foremost, as with all things we do in health and well-being, is just starting with raising awareness first and foremost about what psychological safety is because if it if you simply look at the term uh it, it for some people it, it could be intuitive and 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 for others it may not be so being really clear and there are many different ways to articulate and bring to life what psych safety is and there's the academic uh, definition and there are multiple versions of it um, but for for me the the way I always describe it um, very colloquially is the conditions in which we really can show up as our authentic selves and have a voice and contribute um, our perspectives, because each of us brings a very unique perspective to any conversation that might be on the table. And so if our voices are liberated, if we can fully and constructively share those perspectives. You never know um, if you have, you know, a group of people around the table who might have that very unique insight, that specific idea that we hadn't considered before and nobody had thought about that might unlock whatever the it is that we are trying to crack to serve our people and to serve our consumers. And so, but it is incredible incredibly difficult um, to uh, create that culture of psych safety because it comes down to individuals and moment-to-moment, second-to-second behaviors um, between and among people. It could be 
one by one, uh, one by two, one by many, or in the context of collective teams or even an organization. And so raising awareness, training, um, uh, uh, and we offer training across a number of different segments. We So we have um, a training for Every person uh, who is a part of our business, so it's literally relevant for every human ba uh, being, but then we also have very specific training for managers and senior leaders because we know that um, leaders cast as a particularly long, long shadow. Leaders have privilege. Um, and uh, if a leader is not uh, role modeling psych safety and creating conditions within the team for psych safety, it can be very, very, very tough um, for the team to feel that each person and the team as a collective can speak up with that authentic voice and to bring those unique um, insights. But having said that, uh, listening is also important because speaking up is but half the equation. I can speak speak my authentic truth, share my ideas without fear. Um, but if you're not equipped to listen, so it's not, you know, the the old uh, saw about hearing versus listening, but um, you might be hearing the sounds of my words, but if you are not uh, closely paying attention and carefully listening and digesting, then it becomes a bit of a one-way street. So, so it's it's that virtuous cycle of uh, speaking up, but also listening closely to one another. That's really the pragmatic approach and ensuring that e we equip all employees, um, we equip leaders, um, teams, because they're very specific dynamics. It's not only a leadership job to enable psych safety. Of course, we know that peers, as they work together, um, they have to also uh, enable psych safety for one another. And I think the, 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 the bigger thing, too, is the context that as we work together, um, uh, you know, as as members of teams, and oftentimes as a member of different teams, uh, th there's there's not uh, a zero sum game in that we can all help one another, and if we do help one another, we can hopefully really amplify the impact that each of us makes, um, and we can go farther and and faster in creating those cultural conditions as well. So, it's in incredibly difficult uh, and it requires moment to moment, second by second almost. It's it's written, it's also body language, um, it's speaking and listening. So we bring that to life. And as with all things, um, you know, we ensure that we are measuring as well and we have different uh, instruments to measure psych safety. We include uh, psych safety measurement in our all-employee survey and our quarterly pulses. We also have specific instruments. Um, one in particular called Team Energy assesses multiple dimensions of well-being, of uh, resilience, you know, of team cohesion and psych safety as well, so that uh, teams can deploy these instruments. And then as with all things, data is just data. Mm. Um, and yes, sometimes there are insights from the data, but if you start with uh, the, uh, the insights from the data and then bring to life in the context of teams, 
the hard conversations around, okay, you know, the scores are this for any particular dimension we might be measuring of psych safety or team cohesion, but what really does that mean? Um, what are the behaviors that each of us individually can change that will benefit the collective? And how each of us practices self-determined change because we we have best agency over ourselves and and always having those conversations if you if you will um that are very important every day so it's something we work on all the time um but psych safety um does we hope create the culture where each person can show up and uh voices are heard included um different perspectives matter that diversity of voice but that inclusion of different perspectives so there's a lot that comes together in psych safety that's really really important uh, and informs just our broader whole person health strategy amazing and you know one of the things that we really want for listeners of this podcast is that they'll go away equipped with some actionable tips mm -hmm. that they can put into play in their everyday life and you know, there's a couple of things in there first of all psychological safety you can measure it it's yes. a science. Yes. Well-being, you can measure it. Yes. It's a science. Yes. Um, but listening, really that theme of listening is coming throughout this. And I just wanted to spotlight that because I think, you know, you talked about the importance of the manager role, the people manager role, and there is a ripple effect yes. from your manager, no matter how brilliant your company is. But that puts a lot of pressure, yes. particularly on new managers. Yes. So a lot of new managers actually end up feeling quite stressed. Sure. And what happens when you're stressed? You think you need to know all the answers. And of course, actually, what you need to do at that point is slow down right. and listen. Yes. So I think that's a really, really great and very helpful piece of advice. Um, of course, there's many different levels within an organization. So given you've got such a wealth of experience when it comes to supporting the health and well-being of employees. What do you believe are the critical areas that C-level execs, those at the very highest levels of management in organizations, need to put into play mm. to, to really support that health and well-being of their entire organization? Well, I think the most important thing is um, creating that culture of health and well-being is really, really important. Um, and role modeling um and being vulnerable and speaking up because uh, particularly the our senior most leaders of course cast sometimes the biggest shadow and uh i think if of course but senior leaders like anyone uh, uh, are are human too and so putting that humanness um out for employees to feel, not just see, but feel is important. Um, I think sharing stories, you know, personal stories, wherever possible. There's nothing that sort of brings us to life more than concrete stories. Um, being vulnerable uh, is is uh, incredibly important versus being invincible because oftentimes, of course, there's uh, uh, historical, though I think it's changed greatly, um, and certainly through COVID um, and with the ascendancy of, of, of health and well-being, it's, it's important. I think we are seeing a lot more 
um, vulnerability from senior leaders, but the broader culture uh, of health and well-being, um, creating the right circumstances uh, to invest in health and well-being, in the resources that are global and brought to life with uh, again, local and cultural sensitivities. It's very, very important. Um, reducing stigma, especially around uh, you know what has historically been more sensitive conversations around mental and emotional well-being. Um, emphasizing the critical importance of um, diversity, of inclusion. Um, that does, of course, equate to belonging so that each of us, no matter um, what you know, circumstances may inform our individual realities day to day, we can be ourselves and feel included and feel that we belong. And then to remain, you know, always attentive to the fact that the world of work itself, what work we do, how we do that work, um, absolutely impacts health and well-being. And so I think some those are some of the critical key things uh, that senior most leaders can can bring to bear to, to improve health and well-being. For... You know, what's wonderful about all of those suggestions is actually I think a lot of those suggestions are applicable to everybody in their organization. Yes. You know, so that question was more about, you know, the most senior C-suite execs, but, you know, there's an awful lot of people managers. Yeah. Um, I, I would assume that most of those tips also apply to people managers. Are, mm. are there any else that you might, any other tips you might offer people managers? Yeah. Well, I think um, leaders of teams, uh, of course, then bring and uh, have that even greater intimacy yeah. to the day-to-day um, and I think the key thing is, uh, you know, in the context of the teams that each of us lead, but also belong to, yes, very, very similar tenets, but I think bringing uh, to life every day those tenets is, is, in terms of our actions, is key. So let me give an example. So I um, lead a global team um, in many dozens of countries, again, follow this on many different time zones. One of the things I've tried to be so much better at is putting collaboration tools to to use. This is super pragmatic. So um, our, when I send an email, let's say it might be 2 p.m. my time in the U.S. Eastern time zone, well, that's 2 a.m. for my colleagues in Asia. Um, uh, and that might be uh, 7 p.m. for my team here. So uh, now what I do is I uh, just schedule send so that the email, if it's not emergent um, or urgent, it goes out in whatever that person's time zone may be. So it'd be more like 8 or 9 a.m. for that team member. So so these are little actions uh, that leaders of team and line managers can attend to that can make a world of difference. Because I could say to you all day long, we're in the same team, I could say, Sarah, I might send you an email at 7 p.m. your time on Saturday because I just happen to be working then, um, though I try not to, just to be clear from a well-being standpoint, but it happens, right, despite my best intentions. But I, and I, and I can say, don't worry about it. If it's super urgent, I'll call you or I'll WhatsApp you, but just ignore it. But I can't ignore my leadership shadow and to know that you might be out and about in your evening with your family or on the weekend, uh, maybe going to yoga. And if 
your line manager is emailing you, you're bound to be like, okay, what's this? And then your heart raises a little bit. And then no matter what I've, I've, I've said, I'm, uh, I'm not sending the right cues. And so I think line managers have that greater intimacy, that, that, that day-to-day um, interactions with their teams. And keep in mind, of course, C-suite leaders have teams too. Um, so we can all bring this to life in hyper-pragmatic um, hyper ways. And then I think the other thing too is all managers be they senior leaders or or or, or leaders of uh, regular teams day to day, I think we are being asked now to lead for again that integration of life and work. Mm-hmm. I'm just not leading in the context of the work we do together professionally, mm-hmm. but again, caregiving obligations and those realities of life, whatever might be going on in the context of communities and culture, um, that. Uh, absolutely, uh, very much is something that I need to to at least have a conversation with you about. Um, And again, this is where Unilever is provisioning many resources, uh, not only in the context of work, but also in the context of life, whether it's uh, the vast portfolio of resources through our global EAP program. Mm -hmm. Um, So employee assistance program. Yes, Yes, employee assistance program. So it's not only mental health and emotional well-being, but it could be financial counseling. Um, it could be caregiving support, um, for example. So these are the things to, to bring to life. But also, especially um, as the needs are changing for line managers and even as people become first-time managers, this is where we work with our learning and leadership development organization to ensure that there is training as we onboard and we do have specific curriculum for, say, a first-time line manager, um, the things to think about. So we, we have a lot of tools and resources uh, to equip and support. But again, we're always listening for whatever the new needs might be that we need to bring to life. Again, some really great, practical, actionable tips in there. I mean, I I feel I could talk to you forever, but I I do feel we should move to the rapid fire round. Uh So (laughs) these are the quick answers and it's my favorite round. But a surprise round. It's a surprise round. But if you had a time machine and you could go back in time and you could Mm. give some advice to your 21-year-old self, what would you tell that young woman? Gosh, um, I would say I would tell my younger self uh, to give myself more grace. Um, You know, it's uh, given that for many years now, if I go back to my origin story in health and well-being, I've I've known I've wanted to be in this space for so many years. Um, I think it's really hard when I look at... uh, the human suffering, uh, you know, around me, whether it's at the individual level when I was in practice or at population levels, and um, you know, the world is is hurting in so many in so many parts. But wanting to solve everything as quickly as possible to alleviate human suffering, to unlock human potential, it's um, it, that purpose has always been my north star. But it's it's always how can I go farther and faster and contribute more? Um, And I think as I've grown wiser uh, in health and well-being, just just knowing that so many challenges cannot be solved um, with with surgical precision and just accepting that it's a a journey, I think, has 
been very helpful for my own well-being. Um, so I can keep on contributing as, as much as I can, um, but at least giving myself grace uh, that this is a long journey. And I think a lot of us need to give ourselves grace. Mm. So I think it's wonderful advice. So you've given your 21-year-old self some advice. What's the best advice somebody else has ever given you? Um, I would say, to be honest, um, the best advice I've ever gotten, um, and it's, it's really in the context of life broadly, was in the earliest days I was at GE, um, and I went to, uh, Crotonville, uh, which is, uh, uh you know, GE's, uh, leadership institute. And I was in, um, a manager development course mm -hmm. and the the advice uh I'll, I'll give a professional advice and i'll give a personal advice that i got in that course that stuck with me since so the first is on the on the professional side it's very much about servant leadership and the number one role of a leader um is to develop human beings um, so the human beings who serve on teams that you have the privilege of leading, and that is actually literally more important uh, than anything that I as a manager could do. It, it, and I, because going into it, I think, well, I'm, I'm leading for to improve these metrics and health and well-being, but um, actually the servant leadership mindset, one human being at a time in the very specific context of the teams that, that I lead. I have very, very much practiced that sins and brought that spirit of, of, of care and nurturing um, as arguably the most important thing that I do professionally uh, when I lead teams. And then from a personal standpoint, but it does link back to professional, a very practical tip I learned is block your calendar. It seems so blindingly obvious. Um, but for example, I shared earlier, I try to practice what I preach. If I left it to chance, I would never exercise. I would eat incredibly poorly. I would never sleep. I would never have time with family and friends. So I literally uh, block my calendar. Um, now granted, sometimes I have to edit the calendar, but I do block my calendar to make Witting time, intentional time for the things that are critically important to ensuring my resilience and my well-being um, every day. You know, it's really interesting because mm. the next question I want to ask you is what do you wish you'd learned er earlier? I kind of wish I'd learned that earlier. I started, <laughs> I started blocking out my me time on calendar, but I certainly wish I'd yeah. done it earlier. But what do you wish you'd learned earlier? Ah, okay. I will say this kind of also goes back to to some of those early trainings. Um, situational leadership is something that I wish I had learned earlier in this concept. And it, it can mean something very technical, but I will translate okay. it colloquially as the as plain we, English version as, as we uh, colloquially talk, talked about psych safety earlier. For for me, it's just understanding that every situation, every person, um is contextually very different. And if I were to speak about human beings, uh, you know, human beings come from uh, a different context, different cultures, different temperaments, different mindsets, different set points. And so it, it, in, in some ways, everything does tie together in, in terms of what I have learned. Um, and in this case, what I wish I'd learned earlier is I think um, the best way that I 
can be a good servant leader is to be highly, highly attuned to the human being in front of me, who's very different from the next human being in front of me and that next person and so on and so on. And just to take the time and the care to understand um, where this person sort of in the totality of circumstances is coming from personally, professionally, contextually, culturally, and on and on and on, so that I can adjust how I best serve and support um, one person at a time is something that I wish I'd learned earlier. Fortunately, now it's been quite a number of years since I learned that, so I've been trying to practice and get better at that every day, and it's helped me, I hope, be a much uh, more effective leader of teams. But it's something that I take really, really seriously. Brilliant. So situational leadership actually kind of does what it says on the tin. It, it's yeah, adjusting yes. your leadership style to the situation. Yes, and I then again, there's always many tech, uh, technical constructs, but as with all things, uh, you know, I, I take the colloquial translation, practice it. Absolutely. Well, final question for you. What do you think is the key to living a good life? Hmm. Well, I think the key to living a good life is um, maybe in a, I think about it a couple of different ways. The first is, um, do invest time in understanding um, where your purpose lies, what your individual North Star is. And that has been probably the most important thing in my life um, at helping me live my my best life. So the, the purpose of serving others, uh, the purpose of really enabling um, the people I serve to reach for and realize the best version of themselves so that untapped human potential has helped me uh, when the going has gotten tough in the context of work and or life. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is um, uh, always, and I said this earlier, but I, I will say it again because it's really hard to do, always prioritize what actually matters um, and uh, know what matters um, and prioritize what matters, which takes a lot of work uh, every day so that you don't accidentally um, lose the thread on, on what matters in your, your life um, and be there for what matters and be there for the people that matter. And I think if you can synthesize that purpose and prioritization, whether it's work or life, it it does help a lot in all things. So understanding your purpose, understanding who and what matters to you and what values matter to you. Yes. So just before I finish up, Diana, because I've, yeah. I've loved talking to you, we've covered everything from mm -hmm. the importance of kindness to the importance of listening to the importance of, of allowing ourselves have grace. Um, but I wanted to finish up by welcoming a new addition to our set um, <laughs> because listeners will, oh. may know that my symbol of happiness is is the sheep. Yes. But we were chatting yeah. and you told me that your symbol of happiness is the elephant. So we have an elephant here. Would you like to explain the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room. Can you explain the elephant in the room, please? Uh, oh <laughs> my God. And for our listeners, uh, no, number one, this actually came by uh, by happenstance and, and luck because we were having this conversation before recording. Um, and uh, I literally, Sarah was sharing her story and I just happened to 
say that um, uh, the elephant is is an amazing creature. There, are, but uh, there are many amazing creatures uh, under the face of the sun. But what I've always found fascinating, this kind of does go back to my childhood. Um, uh, growing up, uh, I, I wasn't born in the U.S., but when we we came uh, to the U.S. from from Vietnam, one of our favorite activities at at home was to watch uh, National Geographic. So growing up, I watched tons of Nat Geo uh, nature shows, and it was always my favorites were always you know the ones of the the safaris on the savanna, and seeing uh, elephants was always very captivating because number one, um, you know, there's always the matriarch of the elephant family who's uh, very wise, they, you know, has a spectacular memory. You know, there is a reason why they, there is that saying in memory of an elephant. But uh, leading uh, her tribe, her family, her community, um, sometimes, you know, in uh, really rough circumstances where endurance and resilience really matter is in size. I was always very struck by that imagery from the time I was a child watching nature shows, which is a, a place of happiness to this day. Uh, I still watch a lot of nature shows, and there are many riveting and captivating animals. Uh, and my happy place uh, very much is when I am seeing the world and being a citizen of the world and um, being in so many countries um, all around the world in every part of the world I've had the privilege of uh, visiting. And so, yes, uh, and having had the privilege of um, being with, a, a, you know, in Africa and on safari in the Maasai Mara and seeing, uh, you know, an elephant, uh, many elephant families up close and personal. It's, it's not in a zoo, uh, you know, somewhere, but it's in a natural habitat. It was a profound privilege these magnificent creatures that um, take care of their own, have a spectacular sense of community, are so resilient and enduring and wise. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, what a wonderful place to finish. Uh, and I just want to say a huge thank you, Dr. Diana Han, uh, for bringing such great advice and such great vulnerability as well to this wonderful conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's been really, really lovely to be with you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank and you. Thanks to our listeners as well. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you.